Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That is the narrative of the Bible. When you read the Bible and you open your Bible to read anywhere in the Bible, you're not reading one of 66 disconnected books that do not go together. The Bible is one narrative, one story that all works together, all flows together to tell that story, and that is the story of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And and wherever you read in the Bible, you are reading somewhere in that narrative, and throughout the Bible there are Uh, There are other miniature stories, if you will. There are a variety of times where that narrative is told or illustrated on a smaller scale. What you see here is the story of the Bible. And where we find ourselves as we're walking verse by verse through Genesis on Sunday mornings, we find ourselves for several weeks we looked at the very first part of the narrative, creation. And we studied the creation of man, God's creation, for several weeks. And then last week, if you were with us, in Genesis chapter number 3, we saw in Genesis 3 the next piece of the story, the fall of man, where sin came in, Adam and Eve sinned before God. There in the Garden of Eden, it was God's sinless, perfect creation, and they chose to sin against God. And we saw that, that fall, and really the rest of the Bible, the rest as you read of the Old Testament is God preparing and pointing His people to the redemption that would come through His Son, Jesus Christ. It is, it is one thing, it has been said that the Old Testament is pointing to a promised Savior, pointing forward to a promised Savior, and the New Testament is pointing backwards to that Savior that has come. And we see that throughout where they work together. And as we looked at, at last week as sin entered this world, we saw a message entitled, The Oldest Tricks in the Book. Genesis 3, how did Satan beguile Eve? How did he tempt Eve? How did he get them? And what were the tricks that he used? And if you missed last week's message, you can catch that on our our church um, uh, podcast or on our Facebook page or our website, variety of of, of channels there. But the reality is that some 6,000 plus years later, his tricks haven't changed all that much. The things that he used to tempt Eve and to bring the fall of man, to bring sin into this world is the same things that he uses in your life and in mine that he uses to tempt us and to get us to do that which is against God and against His Word. And and to be honest, last week was a little bit of a heavy message. It was a sobering message, staggering truth, really a, a sad message, the way that sin has impacted and adversely affected uh, every person on earth since that fateful day in the Garden of Eden. It really is the ultimate tragedy that we studied last week. I want us to pick it up where we left off. If you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter number 3. If you don't have your Bibles, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you, or if you're following along on a a device, a phone, or an iPad, if we read aloud, I'll be reading from the King James Version of the Bible. We'll be in Genesis chapter number 3, and where we left off in verses 12 and 13 last week was God talking to Adam and Eve and asking them about their choice to sin. 
And what we saw at the end of last week was that Adam and Eve did what many of us do by nature when confronted with our sins. They were casting blame. And Adam was blaming God and Eve. And Eve was blaming the serpent. And isn't that almost always uh, some of our first responses when, when confronted with our own sin is either to lie, it's deception, or it's to blame. Well, either way, it's, it's not my fault. It's, it's my upbringing. It's my parents. It's, it's my coworker. It's my husband. It's my kids. It's my brother, my sister. Whatever it might be, we blame, don't we? And that's where we pick it up last week was them blaming. Look at now God's response to the sin that has come into this world. Verse number 14, and the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. It's interesting that, that God asked Adam and Eve why they did what they did. God didn't ask Satan or the serpent. God just cast judgment. Satan had already been dealt with, had already been cast out of heaven, and then the, the animal that he inhabited to, to commit this temptation, the serpent, that specific animal was cursed. And isn't it interesting that, that in, in, in our, really throughout history, one of the most feared and loathed and kind of hated animals is what? Snakes. How many of you, you like snakes? There are probably a few of you in here that like snakes. A few of you. How many of you absolutely hate snakes? You hate them. If you saw one, you would run, you would scream. Most of us, snakes are not, like you see a, if you're, I've been to different countries and foreign countries, and, and you see a stray dog or a cat, you might maybe walk up and see if they're going to be kind or nice. You see a snake, you're going to probably go find, a, most of us, a shovel or a, or you're just going to get in a car and ride away or find a shovel or something to, to kill. Nobody, very few people. People, especially wild snakes. I had a pet snake when I was a kid, when I was four or five, a little gardener snake, a little garter snake. And, and, but most people don't like snakes. Interesting, there was that curse put upon that animal that there would be enmity. From, from uh, just recently, there was a movie that came out, a cart, an animated movie called Bad Guys. And what is the title character of the bad guys? Animals that people generally hate. The title character was a snake. Why would that be? It goes back to Genesis 3, the curse that came upon the serpent. Look at chapter, I'm sorry, verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. So he's, he's giving the curse to the serpent, but here is a beautiful phrase. Would you read the end from it to heal, the end of the verse aloud with me. Ready? Begin. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, at first glance, that maybe feels like just meaning that you're going to be trying to bite, you know, human, human, uh, humans, and humans are going to be trying to kill you. But when you study the, the Bible in context, and you understand the verbiage here, and you understand some of the word pictures throughout the rest of the Bible, uh, it, it, this here is the, the oldest gospel in the book. This is a prophecy that I'm putting a curse on you as a, the serpent, 
but it's a prophecy, Satan, that you will, that there is from the woman, the woman that you beguiled, from the woman there is one coming that is going to conquer you once and for all. You will bruise his head. It's a prophecy of Jesus Christ. It's theologians call this the protoevangelium, the first gospel in the Bible, that, that, that they see the first reference to Christ early on in Genesis 3. As soon as sin came into the world, God makes a proclamation that sin is not going to have the last word, that Jesus is going to come. He says here, it shall, you, there's going to be enmity between the, the woman, uh, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. To bruise your heel is a wound. To bruise, or as you study that word out, crush a head is death. You're going to bring some pain, you're going to bring a curse, but you are going to be conquered once and for all. What a beautiful, beautiful book. The, the rest of the Bible, I'm sorry, a phrase, the rest of the Bible is really about the fulfillment of this prophecy. Last week we looked at the oldest tricks in the book, but here in this verse we see the oldest gospel in the book, the good news that there is an answer, that, that, that in the midst of the curse, God here gives the first promise of the Christ. Don't, don't, don't miss that, church. In the midst of the curse, God gives the first promise of the Christ. He's not going to allow Satan to get victory here. One commentator suggested that this prophecy talks about both of Christ's coming to earth, his first coming to be crucified as Savior when he came, that, that Satan bruised his heel, he wounded him, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, he was bruised by Satan, but that second coming that, that is yet to come when after the great tribulation, when Christ will come to conquer Satan once for all, will cast, cast death and hell into, will cast it down into hell. What will happen there? He will crush his head. And so we see here a beautiful, beautiful picture and prophecy of the gospel that, that through Eve and through the seed of the one that had been beguiled will come the Savior that will conquer sin once and for all. And then in verse 16, God turns his attention to Adam and Eve. Verse 16, and we'll get to our verse. Our verse is coming in, a, I'm sorry, our message is coming in a few verses. By way of introduction, we're understanding this passage. Look at verse number 16. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband. By the way, that, that phrase there doesn't mean, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to have a desire to be a good wife. When you study that phrase out, that, and it's used again with Cain and Abel, it means your desire is going to be now to try to usurp his authority. Your desire is going to be to rule over your husband. It's going to be, he's saying, you're going to have sorrow in child rearing. You're going to have trouble in marriage, and he shall rule over thee. So he's, you're going to try to rule over him. And in turn, he may try to, at times, because of the fall, he is going to misuse and abuse his leadership. Instead of lovingly leading you and loving you, he is going to sometimes rule as a tyrant or a despot, trying to get his own way and, and to, to try to get you just whipped into submission. There's going to be problems in marriage. Verse 17, and unto Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. 
In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. He gives here some consequences to Adam and Eve's sin, and it's a good reminder, church, that our God is a God of justice. He is a God of righteousness. He is a God of holiness. Our choices in our lives do have consequences. There are consequences to our sins. It's been rightly said that God forgives sin, but he doesn't always relieve consequences. And here we see two consequences of sin. The very first sin, God says to Adam and Eve, yes, I'm going to bring forth someone that is going to to conquer sin, but there are consequences to your choices, Adam and Eve. And by the way, these two consequences remain to this day. Number one, he told them sin is going to affect your relationships. Sin is going to affect your relationships. He said to Adam and Eve, because of your sin, it is going to be a continual struggle in marriage. Eve, you're going to want to rule over your husband. Adam is going to push back against that and at times will seek to abuse his leadership in marriage. Your desire will be to control him and he will respond by ruling over you in a sometimes tyrannical way. And by the way, what we see today with with some of the gender conflicts and really every feminist movement and all of that, they are responses to and results of this curse right here. There's going to be a battle between men and women. There's going to be a battle in marriage. And and each, Adam and Eve, would each seek their own way. And if we're honest, isn't that true in every married couple in this room? By nature. Now, maybe we, we figured out the gospel has changed our marriages and we've learned our biblical roles. But by nature, what do we all want? Our own way. We want our spouse to do everything the way we want it done. We want our spouse to serve us. We want our life to be better. Isn't that true? And that comes right here from Genesis 3. God promised that there's going to be conflict in marriage. What do we say to newlyweds? I see Grace has her family here. They had a beautiful wedding in the last year. And, but what do we sometimes tell newlyweds? It's, it's awesome, but marriage is hard work. Has anybody ever heard of that phrase? Marriage is hard work. Okay, a few of us. Why do we say that? Why is, why is marriage hard work? Marriage is hard work because in our sin nature, it's not natural for us to live with the other's interest in mind. To follow the God-ordained plan of marriage, sin messed up the first relationship, and hear me now, it has messed up every relationship since. What, what does Paul tell us in, in in the New Testament about how to have a God-honoring, biblical, harmonious marriage. What does he say? What does he say to husbands? Husbands, love your wives. Now in that same passage he says to each other, submitting yourselves one to another. Submitting yourselves one to another. Husbands, love your wives. And then what does he say? Wives, submit to your husbands. That sounds so foreign to us in 2022. But what is Paul saying? You need to reverse the curse if you're going to have a happy marriage. And what is the curse? The curse is that that women are going to live for themselves and want their own way, and men are going to live for themselves and want their own way. And men, you're going to try to rule over your wife, and you need to learn, Paul said, to love your wife. And women, you're going to try to usurp 
usurp your husband's authority to rule over him, and you need to learn to submit. What is Paul saying? The two things that he says to the roles in marriage is that the effect of sin in your marriage, the reason you're struggling in marriage, or one of the reasons, is because you're living for yourselves, you're not living for each other. Paul said the effect, you need to understand, this was the curse on marriage. Sin always affects our relationships. Remind yourself, church, our sinful choices don't just affect us. Teenager, your sinful choices don't just affect you. Choices you make in your teen years can have a deep lasting effect on a wife or a husband or children you've never met that you don't even know who they are. It can affect that relationship decades down the road. Employee, your choices affect your coworkers and your employer, empl employers, your choice. All of our choices affect those around us, and sinful choices always negatively affect our relationships. So be careful of the choices you make. Think about who is this going to affect? How is this going to hurt those that I love? Not only does God tell them in these passages by way of introduction, and don't worry, my message has no points. It's not three points. It's a couple of beautiful verses. But by way of introduction, a long introduction today, secondly, we see here, sin affects our roles. It affects our relationships, and it affects really some of our, our, our most deep and and purpose, meaningful purpose in life. What does God say? There would be great sorrow in labor for both of them, both Adam and Eve. For the woman, their sorrow and pain would come to what we call the labor of bringing a life, labor and delivery, the labor of bringing a life into this world. Isn't it interesting? In the animal world, that animals have, generally speaking, a far easier time with childbirth than humans do. They have far less recovery, far less pain, far less need of, of outside help. It's far less traumatic. I'm not saying there's no trauma at all, but it's in the animal world, generally speaking, giving birth is far less traumatic. We were, earlier this year, we were in uh, with, my, with my dad and stepmom uh, on the, the Gulf Coast in Florida, and on our last night there, we saw a big crowd gathered around the beach from our balcony. We were looking out, and a big sea turtle had come. And I'd never seen this before, but he had wandered up onto the beach, and he started digging a big hole, and I don't know, somebody could tell me how many they lay, 60 or 100 eggs or whatever it is. And he was there for an hour, or she, I guess she, I don't know if it's not he, she was there. It's 2022, I don't know, but, but she, was, she was there for an hour or two. I don't know, they just don't look real feminine. They're kind of like dirty and, and green, so I was thinking it was a he, but I think it was a she. She was there for, for an hour or two. She, she didn't come up with a nurse, she didn't come up with any medicine, she didn't come up with any, any, any midwife. She just wandered up on the beach, was there for an hour or two, dug some sand, had a hundred babies, put some sand over those babies, and went back out to the— and she's actually never going to see those children again. She's done. They're going to they're gonna try to make their little way there, and birds are going to eat them, and it's really sad, and all that's going to happen, but— but the reality is— I had 100 kids in two hours, I'm back to the ocean swimming really slow, finding Nemo. That's it. It was like, there's no—wouldn't that be nice, ladies? Wouldn't that be nice? And one of the reasons for that we find in Scripture is the curse. We, we talk about it, that women go through the valley of the shadow of death to bring life into this world. 
It comes here from Genesis chapter 3. What many would consider one of the most joyous moments of a woman's life is also considered one of the most painful and dreaded and really terror-inducing moments of a woman's life. I remember we were, my wife was getting ready. We were in the hospital with our firstborn, Ashlyn, and I don't like to see people I love hurting. I don't faint at the sight of blood. I can see injuries. It's not, it's not that, but I really don't like to see people hurting, especially if I can't do anything for them. And we were in the hospital, and, uh, and, and we were getting ready, and my wife was, it was getting close, and she was hitting me and screaming at me, and all the things that you ladies do when you're going through all of that. And, and the nurse, all, they're all gathered around my wife, and one of them looks over at me, and all of a sudden I became the patient, and one of them said, are you okay? You don't look too good. Why don't you go sit over here? You need to sit down. Here's a cold rag on your forehead. And, and, it's, it, and I, they thought I was about to faint. I think I was doing fine, but th- their professional opinion, I wasn't doing as well as I thought I was. Why do I say that? Because ladies, it's really hard on us too. That's why I want you, what do I want you to know this morning. <laughs> but the reality is, the reality is, what, what is one of the biggest, most joyful moments is also one of the most terrible and painful What are some of the greatest sorrows in our lives? They're those that involve our children, aren't they? There's sorrow in parenting. When our children have a hurt or a pain or break our hearts, it's sometimes some of the deepest pains we'll ever walk through in this life. Where does all that come from? Sorrow in child rearing, child birthing, sorrow in child rearing comes here from the curse. For the man, there would be great pain and sorrow in his daily labor, the work that God had given him to do. It would be a struggle now from here on out for Adam to, fu- to provide and fulfill his God-given purpose. Not only that, but every day that he worked with the dust of the earth, he would be reminded that, it says it right here in verse number, the end of verse 19, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. What was Adam's work? Adam was in, his company was dust incorporated. He was involved in turning dust into food, to planting, to farming. But that which he worked with every single day was a reminder, one day I'm going to die and go right back here. This is what God made me with. God spoke into the breath of life, and this is what I'm going to return to. Because of the curse, he would be reminded that someday, a day unknown to him, he would die and return to that ground. The very ground over which Adam labored reminded him daily that it was waiting to receive his remains. Isn't this one of the greatest fears and most terrible unknowns that we as humans deal with? Now, if we know Christ, there is a comfort and a joy, but here's the reality. If we were to walk around and I would say, do you want to die today? I would say 99 to 100 percent of the people in this room would say, I know I'm going to heaven, but I don't want to die today. I want to keep living. I I enjoy the life God's given me, the friends, the family, whatever it might be. No, most of us do not want to die today. There is that fear of when will I die? How will I die? And by the way, it can hang over us. Today could be, I was talking to somebody yesterday, and we were talking about, we were at coffee, and we were talking about the future, and I said, the reality is, I could die today. I I hadn't planned to say that, but why did I say that? Because none of us know. And that came at the curse. This kind of fear, this cloud that hangs over us for our entire lives, that someday you will die again and go to, the, to dust. What a, after the fall, what a terrible daily burden to carry. This week, people that we knew about 25 years ago had their miracle child, a 13-year-old son, I believe his name is Nathan, I've never met him, but we know their parents, who God gave them after 17 years of infertility. He passed away after having a cardiac episode at a, at a church camp this last week. I can't even begin to imagine the pain and sorrow and grief that this sweet couple has faced. 
He was in law enforcement for a time. He was a missionary. There were missionaries in Nicaragua for a time. Just godly Christian folks. A week ago, they were sending their son off to camp. Today, they're planning his funeral. That's not supposed to happen. A parent should never have to bury a child. But that unimaginable sorrow that some in this room have walked through, you've been there. It's a result of the fall of man. That specter of death that could come to us at any day. Sin brought sorrow and pain and terror to the life's work of both Adam and Eve. Eve in labor and childbirthing and child rearing. Adam in his labor of his daily work that it's going to be really hard now. And what, what, is, what does it remind us? What is sin because of the curse of sin? What is God telling us? Marriage is hard. Parenting is hard. Can I get an amen? Am I the only one that at times feels completely unequipped for the task of parenting? It's far bigger than me and my wife. Work is hard. Death is hard. Careers are hard. As they say sometimes now, adulting is hard. What's the saying? Life is tough, and then you die. Genesis 3 explains why. Why? Because of the consequence of sin. It affects, sin affects our relationships and it affects our roles. Sad and heavy stuff, no doubt, but the story begins to turn after this verse. In the next couple of verses, we see a complete shift, and it's beautiful. We move on from the burden of sin. God didn't just leave Adam and Eve to sit there in the sorrow of their choices, the regret, the shame, the condemnation, by the way, which is where some of you are sitting today. God doesn't want you sitting here this morning in the sorrow and shame and regret and condemnation of your choices. He doesn't just say, Adam, Eve, I'm disappointed with you. There are going to be consequences for what you've done. Marriage is going to be really hard now. It was perfect before. Parenting's going to be really hard now. It was, didn't happen before, but it's going to be hard now. Uh, work is going to be really hard now. It was easy before. All of these things are going to be really hard, but he doesn't leave them there with just that bad news. The story begins to turn, and this is my message this morning. Some of you are scared. I haven't even put the message title up yet, and it's already 10.58. I promised. As I said, there aren't any points. I'll get through this quickly now, but here is the message, and I don't want you to miss it. The next two verses are beautiful. They're wonderful. I want you to see it. In verse 20, we see Adam's faith in the midst of his greatest failure. God had told them that they would die if they ate of that tree. They ate of that tree, and death was pronounced upon them. But, but then in verse 15, God promised, in ver that protoevangelium that I told you about, God promised that he would bring a redeemer to earth through Eve. And I want you to see Adam has a choice to believe that everything is over because of his sin, or to believe that God can work past and through his sin to do his work. And look at what Adam said. Would you read verse number 20 aloud with me? It's so beautiful. And I want us to see in these two verses, the title of my message is this, the oldest grace in the book. Last week was the oldest tricks in the book. Verse 15 is the oldest gospel in the book. And verses 20 and 21, the oldest grace in the book. Wherever sin is, God always comes in with grace. Look at verse 20. Let's read it aloud if we can this morning. Ready? Begin. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. How many kids did Adam and Eve have at this point? How many? None. This is a proclamation of faith. 
This, this verse, again, when we're reading our Bible, especially if we're trying to read it in a year, and we're reading the first three chapters of Genesis on January 1st, so we can check that box, so we can get done with reading through the Bible in a year, we'll just read over this verse. This verse is a beautiful picture of Adam's faith. He, he believed God in the moment of his greatest failure, that God wasn't done with him, that God wasn't done with Eve. Adam's response was to trust God. He said, you've got a new name now, you're Eve, which means the mother of all living. What is Adam saying here? He's, he's saying, he's believing God that God could bring life from death, that we're supposed to die, the curse is death, and God, you're the mother of all living, God can bring life from death, that he could bring newfound purpose from ultimate loss. Adam's declaration was an overwhelming shout of hope. What was he saying? Honey, it's not all over. You are now Eve, the mother of all living. Yes, we're going to have to move. We're not going to get to live in our garden. And yes, marriage is going to be tough. Me and you are going to have to learn to work out some differences now. And yes, there are some heartaches and there are some pains waiting ahead for us. And yes, my job just got a whole lot harder and, and I'm going to come home really tired from work and our lives are going to be different, but it's not over. God isn't done with us, honey. Eve, because she was the mother of all living. In Adam's pronouncement of faith, he communicated that sin didn't have to get the final word. God did. And I want to say this morning, sin doesn't have to have the final word in your life. God can. Sin doesn't get the final word. Even you say, well, well, the New Testament is where we find grace. The New Testament is where we find Jesus. The New Testament is where we find salvation. The New Testament is where we find a merciful, loving, long-suffering God. Oh, no, friend, Genesis 3 is where we find salvation. Genesis 3 is where we find mercy. Genesis 3 is where we find grace. Genesis 3 is where we find a loving, long-suffering, forgiving God. We'll get there here in a verse. What is, what is he saying here? What does this remind us of? God can forgive you. He can save you. He can redeem you. He can change your entire life and your eternity. God can take broken pieces and use them to make beautiful vessels. It's what he does best. Eve, living undoubtedly in shame and in regret and in condemnation. Adam, maybe beating himself up. How could I let this happen? Well, why wasn't I there when Satan tempted Eve? Life is over. God's going to kill us. And what do we find? Hey, honey, there's hope in the midst of our failure. Oh, God doesn't condone sin. There are consequences. It affects our relationships. It affects our roles. It's not a free pass to sin, but when we do, it's a reminder of its grace. And then I want you to look at the second verse. In verse 20, he, his grace gave Eve a new name. In the next verse, it's going to give Adam and Eve a new some new clothing. Would you read verse 21 aloud? Our last verse we'll look at, verse number 21. Ready? Begin. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Again, at first glance, okay. God took him shopping for a new outfit. Cool. But when you dig in, and you think about what this means and what it was pointing to, do you see it there? The grace, the mercy, 
the love, the oldest grace in the book right here in this beautiful display of God's kindness and patience with mankind. Man had messed up in a few verses. We saw it last week. What had man done when he messed up? It's what all of you and I, what you and I usually try to do. Man in his own power decided to try to cover his sin in his own strength. He went and gathered some fig leaves, and God came, and they were wearing clothing that they made out of fig leaves, and God said, why are you dressed like that? Well, because because we're naked. Well, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of that fruit? And man, in his own strength, tried to cover his sin. Man, and we do that, don't we? Man uses his own methods to try to make his way to God, and as it always is, the best that man can do is completely insufficient. You and I cannot earn our way to heaven. We cannot earn our way. Adam and Eve needed a payment and a covering that they couldn't provide for themselves. And you and I, we need a payment and a covering for our sins that we cannot earn or deserve or pay for ourselves. We need, Adam needed one that required the death of another. A life given to give new life, blood to be shed to cover the sins of man very possibly a lamb that was slain to make their coats of skins. You know what you and I need? We need the death of another. Life given to give new life, blood to shed, be shed to cover the sins of man. You see, in this verse, God gave Adam and Eve a temporary garment of righteousness to cover the effects of their sin. But what this verse was doing, what he was doing, he was pointing to a far greater payment that would be paid for the sins of all and Adam and Eve's descendants, including you and including me. This is the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ, the innocent, sinless Lamb of God, was slain to provide a covering for our sins that we could never provide in our own strength. Hear me now, church, the fig leaves of their good works would never do. We needed the sinless, spotless blood of the Lamb of God. The fig leaves of our good works will never do to cover our sins, to earn our way to heaven, to make our way to God. The fig leaves of our good works will never do. We need the payment of a sinless, spotless lamb whose blood was spilt for your sins and for mine. What did it it say in Leviticus 17, verse 11? For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Adam and Eve tried to make atonement for their sins with fig leaves, and God said, oh no, blood has to be spilt, life has to be given for life. And, and you have, you have and, and he said, and what I'm going to do, John 3, 16, I love you so much that I'm going to send my only begotten son to, to die for you, to let his sinless blood be spilled. When they would, in the Old Testament, always a picture pointing to Christ, when they would sacrifice an animal, what would it be? It would be an animal without spot or blemish. It would be a perfect animal, if you will. It was a pointing to the perfect Messiah, the perfect Savior. Hebrews 9, Pastor Sammy mentioned it in the song service. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Oh no, church, verse 21 is not just God taking them shopping for a new set of clothes. Oh no. Verse 21 is the oldest grace in the book. 
Verse 21 is God saying, without the shedding of blood is no remission, but I am willing to shed blood because I love you so much to cover your sins, to give you new hope, to give you a new start. What is the ultimate message that the grace of God shown here in verse 21 is teaching us? Here's the ultimate message. There is no sin greater than the grace of God. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Would you say that aloud with me, church? Ready, begin. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. One more time. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Hey, Adam and Eve, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. It's pretty heavy, and it's pretty sad to think about all that they lost and all of the consequences, but God said, I don't want you to sit in that pity party right there where your sin abounds, Adam and Eve. My grace does much more abound. You tried to figure out a way to cover your sin. I'm not going to reject you. I'm not going to kill you. No, I'm going to go and kill another one of my creation, an animal, so that I could shed blood to point to the fact that one day I would allow my son to, to be slain on the cross for your sins and for mine, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Don't lose sight of this truth. His grace abounds. Even when all seems cursed, when all seems lost, when all seems hopeless, God's grace is real. From the earliest pages of Scripture and the first sin, we see God's grace. Yes, God is a God of holiness and righteousness and justice, but He's also a God of grace and mercy and love. He's a God of redemption and pardon and forgiveness. He's a God of hope. And by the way, not only is He willing to cover our sin— He's willing to do all of the work to cover it. Did you see what it said in verse 21? The Lord God made coats of skins. God did all the work. Adam and Eve didn't deserve it. They didn't ask for it. God did all the work for their redemption. The first Adam, he was a thief who was cast out of paradise. We'll see those verses next Sunday morning. The last Adam, Jesus, while hanging on the cross, said to a thief, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God? The great gospel was announced in the beginning of Genesis, and it's consummated in the end of Revelation, and all of Scripture points to the gospel of Christ. If you're here this morning and you're apart from Christ, you're lost, like Adam and Eve were in verse 20, verse 19 probably. But what happened in verse 20? We see faith, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What do we see in verse 19? Adam and Eve were lost in their sin, struggling with the consequences of their sin, a struggling relationships and struggling roles and pain and heartache and hurt and death. And what do we see in verse 20 and verse 21? We see faith. We see really grace. I would say we see redemption. God had given them a purpose, they had messed it up, and now we're going to see in the next few verses, God is going to say, I've got a new life for you. I've got a new purpose for you. What is it? It's a picture of salvation. The oldest grace, the grace that Adam and Eve needed is the same grace that you and I need. The grace that Adam and Eve lived in after their failure is the same grace that you and I need to live in after our failure. You and I need His grace. If you're apart from Christ, you're lost. If you're in Christ, you have life. And this grace is what we celebrate at communion. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. 
Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series. 